I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange. Our show today is The Future Cannot Be Capitalist. Michael Yates on the working class. All of our music today comes from the Redskins' 1986 album, Neither Washington Nor Moscow. This is Reds Strike the Blues. With Covington Catholic High School students offering fresh examples of the embodied ideologies of capitalism, like white supremacy, patriarchy, and ecological destruction, we turn to theories of working class solidarity. If we want a social system that is not alienating, with meaningful labor, with equality in all spheres of life, with true substantive democracy, with poisons removed from our soil, air, and water, with as much protection as possible from life's slings and arrows, then capitalism and its interconnected processes and institutions, its embedded ideologies, must be destroyed. So says my guest, Michael Yates, the newly retired editorial director for the Monthly Review Press from 2006 to 2018. Yates has just published a new book, Can the Working Class Change the World?, published by Monthly Review Press. His other books include Why Unions Matter and A Freedom Budget for All Americans, recapturing the promise of the civil rights movement in the struggle for economic justice today, co-authored with Paul LeBlanc. Michael Yates began a university teaching career in economics at the University of Pittsburgh's satellite campus at Johnstown. In the mid-1970s, he participated in union organizing activities, first with the maintenance and custodial workers on campus, and then with the teachers. He traveled all over the state of Pennsylvania and into West Virginia and Ohio, educating workers about labor unions, their right to form a union, and economics. He taught for many years in the labor center at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where his students were union officers and members. In his new book, Yates condenses decades of activism, organizing, and teaching into a kind of primer on the working class and capitalism, and more powerfully, offers practical actions the working class needs to commit to in order to change the world. We begin with exploitation and expropriation, capitalism's twin pillars of abuse and theft, and how this frames and limits the ways humans can even conceive of alternative ways of organizing society. We then move quickly to the necessity of envisioning and propounding a very anti-capitalist set of essential positions, through which we might begin to understand how the very American and very powerful myth of individualism keeps us separated from a much-needed working-class solidarity. Our lives depend on that solidarity. And now, the future cannot be capitalist. Michael Yates on the working class, on Interchange, on WFHB. I see capitalism as a system founded on two basic ideas and actions. First is the is the exploitation of wage labor, that is the extraction from workers of an output that's greater than the output that they would need to survive. 
they have to work extra hours in effect every day to produce the output, which when sold will give the give the employer profit. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. And second, there and prior to that uh, exploitation is expropriation, the taking of something without payment. Uh, initially, land is taken. Uh, people are denied access to their common lands uh, in England, for example. Black bodies are taken in the form of slavery, which is central to the uh, to the to the acceleration of capitalist uh, production. The bodies of of women. Uh, are expropriated uh, for free by the capitalists to provide the next generation of uh, of workers. The earth itself is expropriated. So my definition of the working class is tied to those notions of exploitation and and uh, expropriation. Mm-hmm. So that first of all, people that work for wages are generally speaking members of the working class. Although I would exclude. Uh, those that are tied so directly to capital that they are exploiters themselves. That is, I don't see how the police can be members of the working class or prison guards could be members of the working class or mm. corporate lawyers and, and other sorts of flax for the corporations. They can't be members of the working class. But the working class is a very, very large, excluding those groups, people that work for wages. Now, at the same time, in any given time, not everybody can get wage labor employment. They're unemployed. Uh, there are people who've become discouraged and drop out of the workforce. There are tens of millions in the world of people that work, um, you know, selling lottery tickets or tortillas. They work in the informal sector. They're all members of the working class, uh, women, mainly women who uh, su- who support families by their by their actions, by their by their cooking, cleaning, by their giving birth to children. Uh, these are members uh, of the working class. But I also, if you look at expropriation, I also include peasants. Uh, as certainly strong at potential allies of the working class. So when you combine all of those groups, you got a couple of a few billion people uh, mm-hmm. in the world that I would consider the working class broadly speaking. The people who, if only a small fraction of them were to organize militantly, could change the world. Yeah, it's a, it's an important point. We keep, I think, losing track of it, right? I think Adam Smith some, says somewhere how easy it is for owners to organize because there are so few of them and how hard it is to organize labor or the working classes or any other class because they're large, disparate, uh, many identities, et cetera, many places to live, many, many things to deal with besides that one focused idea of, of capitalist ownership. So it's an interesting uh, dilemma to confront the sheer power of the working class if only it knew how to be together. Yes, indeed. Uh- of course, workers are split in many ways, as you say, just sort of uh, naturally in capitalism. That is, they're, they're split by skill. Capital exploits uh, racial and gender uh, differences. Uh, people are in different parts of the world. There are rich countries and poor countries. There's the imperial actions of the rich countries against the poor countries, the extraction of tremendous amounts of profit from the global south to the global north, helping to buy off the working classes of the north. Mm-hmm. Uh, to support the states of the North even through right. taxation. So it's a daunting task for unity to occur in the working class. It's, it's very large and disparate. You use the term buying off, 
right? So one of the one of the things that's hard to do when we have these conversations in the U.S. in particular, especially if you're not one of those people that understand what it is to be in the working class, even if you are or feel like you're part of capitalist success, right? You have you've been bought off in some ways, and not only propagandized, but also feel like you 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 know you you've got the sense of your own success to have to deal with before you can understand that success comes on the back of billions. Yes, indeed. And uh, of course, to a certain extent, that uh, that buying off is coming to an end because mm-hmm. as as social democracy in, in, in Europe uh, is, is, is waning, as, as capital has gone on the attack globally against workers everywhere, including in the global north, uh, you find you find workers in the United States strapped, exploited, uh, expropriated, and what have you, so that it so that most of the money from the global South goes directly into the pockets of the capitalists. Now, extraordinarily rich people uh, all around the world, billionaires created, but you know every week there's a new billionaire probably in the world, and uh, and and so there's a certain narrowing the difference between workers in the global north and the global south it's still monumentally large and very difficult to build solidarities and here i think something that's that's really important as i devote a lot of time in that last chapter too is is the need for education in every organization in the global north in particular but of course in the global south too This is Interchange. My guest is Michael Yates, author of Can the Working Class Change the World? In it, he stresses the need for radical education and indicts even labor unions for doing very little to educate members on labor history and fighting capitalism. Uh, It's amazing to me how few labor unions, how few political parties of the left have have education components. Mm -hmm. I was a labor educator for thir- for about 32 years, starting in 1980 in, in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, very conservative uh, kind of town. And uh, it was interesting how workers would get enlightened when you started to talk about more general things than just their grievance procedures or the nuances of the labor law and collective bargaining, how when you put those into a larger context, how workers' eyes would, would, uh, <laughs> would light up. I remember teaching a group of auto workers at a plant near Pittsburgh. They had a there was a General Motors plant that actually made parts for old cars. Uh, they could make fenders for a 1969 Chevrolet, for example. Hmm. And uh, it, it was really interesting. I remember at a break one time, I w- I had an eight hour class. It was like sort of intense, <laughs> trying to get people to understand the system as a whole. And at the lunch break, students would come to me and say, you're really opening some eyes. Mm -hmm. And I would think to myself, well, why didn't the United Auto Workers, of which these people were members, one of the most allegedly progressive unions in the country, why didn't they open the workers' eyes? They had ample opportunity to do Mm -hmm. so, but they chose not to. You have so many unions organized as bureaucracies sort Mm -hmm. of on the model of the corporations that they face. You have entrenched leadership. They fear education. Yet education is going to has to be central to opening the eyes of working people. No, it's true. Leftists always say that we learn by our actions. We learn through experience that when we organize collectively, that enlightens us. But it takes more than that. That enlightenment has to continue mm-hmm. day in, day out. There has to be organized education in every kind of organization 
that those who want to change the world form. And that's badly missing and an important component of what would need to be done. The most important thing for us to do here is, is to show not only that capitalism is exploitative, as it clearly is, uh, but say there are ways in which we activate a different consciousness, as you say. So the last chapter of the book bears the same title as the book, Can the Working Class Change the World? The answer is yes, of course, but the, more emphatically, you say it must do so. It's the key to changing the, the terrible path that we've been on and that we're continuing to sort of nosedive into a, a non-future. So the key uh, instilling uh, what in this country at least is a radical notion that the I must become the we, and you quote from Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath, uh, the quality of owning freezes you forever into I and cuts you off forever from the we. So this is your, your sort of central uh, thematic idea, right? Yes, I, 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 think, that's, I think that's true. That, that seemed like a really good way to, to put the nature of the system and what needs to be done to overcome it. That is, the we has to start to supersede the I. Mm-hmm. And that's that's got to be central to any any social change. And I give a bunch of examples uh, in in that last chapter of attempts to overcome the we of uh, the shortcomings of unions and political parties, et cetera, with respect to that. Mm-hmm. But if you look around, if you look around the world and even in the United States, you, you see examples of the of the we. And I give a couple of instances of that. For example, uh, in Detroit, you got a what did I say? A thousand community gardens mm-hmm. for people in a, in a in a devastated industrial former industrial city have begun to take land right. uh, that's lying idle and start to produce. The landless workers movement in Brazil has a slogan: "Resist, resist the exploitation and expropriation. Uh, occupy, occupy land right. and produce." And I think production is central. For for instance, it's good that a lot of people in the United States, a lot of young people especially, have joined the Democratic uh, Socialists of America. And it's good that a couple of people like Ms. Ocasio-Cortez have been elected to the Congress. Uh, those are all good things. I'm not going to say they're not, even though I'm not a super fan of electoral politics because mm-hmm. I think it's sucked into the two-party system and there's no way uh, – there, there's no way uh, – out of that. Those are good things. Pressure in the government is a good thing. No question about it. Pressure them as much as you can for shorter hours, for better health care, for better retirement systems, and so on and so forth. As many radical demands as you can make, make them against the state. But in addition, you need what I call collective self-help. You need to start organizing production yourself, ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that those that sounds you know simple like a community <laughs> part. Right. How is attacking capitalism? But it really is. Right. And then uh, if if you consider that the that the city of Havana with two million people in Cuba has organized collectively to produce enough food and vegetables to feed all of the people in Cuba through urban farming, well that's an incredible use of the we against the I. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have those Amokali farm workers in in Florida who organized uh, boycotts against uh, fast food companies uh, to win better conditions for for farm workers. Uh, you have the uh, Richland Progressive Alliance in Richmond uh, in Richmond, uh, California, mm-hmm. organizing politically, collectively, the we against the I to improve circumstances in that city and a model that could be copied. It's time for a break. This is Go Get Organized, another one from the Redskins. 
Stay with us for more on how the working class can change the world with author, activist, and organizer Michael Yates when Interchange returns on WFHB. I got a job to interchange. In this segment, Michael Yates begins to lay out for us how and where a working class must be organized. But first, what are we saying no to when we fight against expropriation and exploitation? Let's, uh, let's do this real quick, though. Let's be sure we, uh, we understand some of the things that, that you're trying to give examples of. In, in your book, you call these the multiple terrains of struggle. The, um, the first thing to do is, as you say, we have to really re- envision what the future is that you want to be, right? One of the things we kind of lose track of is that we, we can't just say we don't want these things. We have to say what we do want as well. Um, and, but one of the things you say is if you're, you're going to do things like this, you first have to understand that it's it's going to be the antithesis of the capitalist society that we here in the U.S. are living in. And that means, you know, no to private ownership of the means of production and land, no to the production of profit, no to um, economic growth, no to wage labor, uh, no to expropriation of lands, no to private plunder, no to imperialism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So no to all the things we we actually live in is is the first thing you have to do. It's, you say it right out, to put the matters bluntly, the rule of capital must be terminated. Um, so with what though, right? This is the point of this last chapter, with what? Um, it's easy for people to say in this context, well, you're a socialist or you're a communist. And so replacing it with socialism, well, look at all these socialist things that fail. Look at communism that fails. Look at, you know, all these things that people talk about. But you specifically don't really talk about socialism. I think you mentioned it once 
in the entire book in, in terms of socialism versus socialist party or things like that. But you're trying to actually establish some activities that begin to cause people to, as you say, be a we uh, in their consciousness. So what are the things that should be essential? Well, for, first off, all of those things that that I think we must be against are connected one to the other. Mm-hmm. And so it, all struggles have to be encompassing. That is, as Istvan Meseros, the great uh, late uh, Hungarian uh, philosopher, said that capital has to be attacked on all terrains, all at once to the extent possible, because every bad thing about capitalism is connected to every other bad thing about capitalism. You can't attack one without at least thinking about or seeing the connections with the others. So that's that's a, an important thing that's that's often missing in social struggles. But then radicals always say, well, we can't do cookbooks for the future that we'll learn by doing. And that's true. But by the same token, it seemed to me that I have a list of things that I think we, sh- we certainly should be for, we certainly should demand. And, and first and, and number one is a sustainable environment. That has to be central right now because the, there won't be any world for the working class to change mm-hmm. unless there's a sustainable environment. We have the opposite of a sustainable environment right now. And so anything that can be done to make the environment sustainable will be a good thing. And that's why I talked about uh, urban, urban agriculture. Mm-hmm. Peasants struggling in in, uh, in India to, to begin to produce and control the land themselves using sustainable uh, farming techniques. So that I think is uh, it, it, ha- it has to be be central uh, right now. I think that uh, if capital plans, corporations plan all the time. They're they're planning and plotting to <laughs> to take over as much of the world as they can, and our minds trying to take them over as well. It's a mm-hmm. hegemonic system. So I think that an economy has to be planned. Now, making it democratic planning, I suppose that's a daunting task. It, it certainly is. But the anarchy of the marketplace has to be has has to be superseded by a, a planned uh, economy. It seems to me. Uh, people talk about market socialism, using the market. But once you have a market, then you have to have success in the market to succeed, mm-hmm. and you get that whole capitalist I mentality. So I don't think the market is the solution to our problems. Uh, you need a planned economy. I think that it's important to socialize as much consumption as we can. Certainly, uh, our living arrangements could become more socialized. Uh, we're still building houses the way we always built them. People are living in the same crappy places they always lived in. It seems to me that housing, that uh, that uh, child care, uh, transportation, uh, all, all need to be socialized. It would save on the use of resources and it would bring people together uh, at the same time. Uh, what's a, what would be the, the problem with uh, living in sort of uh, more communal pods where people have their own living spaces, but then there are communal parts of the living arrangement as well, instead of p- people living in real tall buildings isolated from one mm-hmm. another? Uh, yeah, sort of, you know, one of the things that I'll, I'll jump in re- real quick, just because you're going to have people that listen and say, well, these have been tried or, you know, why don't we just look at the, you know, the terrible, um, you know, housing units in the Soviet Union or or, or our own uh, uh, projects, you know, this idea that we uh, create these things that are, um, and I think people like to say um, uh, uniform and bland or, you know, that kind of stuff but without imagining that we can plan something else. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> besides what's come before, you know, that we can actually consider these as social projects versus, you know, state-driven ideas of uh, another way of austerity. Uh, so, you know, it's important. People like to they're gonna they're gonna definitely try to negate some of these things in terms of, you know, how they've happened in the past. This planned economy, these different ways of socializing, living means I don't get to be me anymore. And there's the I comes back in, right? I don't get to express myself. You know, I guess I'm trying to be the negative audience that would respond to this from a capitalist perspective. Well, one of the things that I would say is, I don't know if you ever, it's sort of a dumb show, but if you ever watched uh, Dr. Phil on television, Mm -hmm. one of the things that he always says to his guests when they make arguments somewhat similar to that, he says, how's that going for you? (laughs) And so I would say to people that want to focus on the I and think that this society allows them to succeed to ask them, how's that going for you? We all want to be, we're social animals. We all want and seek out human companionship. Uh, er, Everybody does or wants that. And it would seem to me that when you do that, you have the best chance to be yourself. You have the best chance to utilize your capacities, your your capabilities. The power of workers is in the workplace. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Author Michael Yates confronts capitalist propaganda that socialist revolutions produce nothing of value and inherently lead to authoritarian governments. In light of the past, you know, if you look at the revolutions that have occurred, even if you look at the Soviet Union, which is always uh, seen in a rather negative light, even by radicals, if you look at the 1920s, in the midst of civil war or after the civil war, uh, where the United States and England had troops in Russia, where you had the white armies Mm -hmm. killing people, engaging in pogroms against Jews and that sort of thing, you had a flowering of human creativity and ingenuity. You had uh, really super good movements in the arts and in poetry, in literature. Uh, You had uh, increases in the rights of women. You had organizations all around building on people's sort of innate creativity. Now, of course, that was all all, all, all went for naught, much of it uh, in the end. The same thing's true in China. Mao said that land would be distributed to peasants. It was. And through a period of, uh, of sort of gradual collectivization in the countryside, uh, communes and collective farms were, uh, were, were organized. And uh, Monthly Review just uh, published a book about the, the, the Chinese uh, communes and how their destruction uh, was ruinous for Chinese peasants and for the society as a whole. They had many successes. Now, they were always struggling against the, uh, 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 against the eye, so to speak. Mao called them capitalist rotors, you know, people who wanted to restore capitalism. Mm-hmm. And he tried valiantly to prevent that and failed. Now China has become capitalist. But the same thing true with Cuba, where you had a, 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 a socialist revolution. When the, when the uh, Soviet Union collapsed and aid to Cuba diminished, Cuba didn't collapse. They reoriented their production, their agriculture, more towards the we, more towards collective farming, more towards constant education going along with the production, like in that urban agriculture. So there are a lot of lessons that can be learned from those societies. Left-wingers in the United States don't want to learn those lessons. They don't want to look at those societies 
sort of dialectically, like as a whole, and see what they accomplished and see why those accomplishments failed. Right, right. So those they, we can learn a lot from those. We can learn a lot from what's happened uh, in the United States where there are collective efforts, where there are worker-controlled firms, where there is that urban agriculture going on yeah. in various parts of the country, where Occupy Wall Street, for example, mm-hmm. sort of brought to the fore the we. Mm-hmm. Well, you make, uh, again, you make lots of uh, lots of those examples come to the fore in, in the book. So uh, if you don't mind, we'll just walk through the multiple terrains uh, a struggle as well and kind of hit the highlights there. Again, uh, especially the radical education uh, aspect, which you touched on briefly. But you start out with the, the, the fact that you've got to sort of state your principles and commitments and, and stick to them. Well, I, I do. And, and, you know, when you think about, say, the AFL-CIO in the United States, when has it ever, where, where is Rich Trumka, where is the statement of principles for how that organization is to be run? Mm-hmm. They've never even made a general statement with real teeth about racism in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, much less uh, anything else. So it would seem to me that every organization has to have a statement of what its principles are and it has to stick to them. You know, there's a reason why right-wingers win uh, election. There's a reasons why Margaret Thatcher, uh, a horrible person, uh, came to power in uh, in England. I think people are attracted to those who have principles and stick to them, mm-hmm. even if they're bad principles. So why doesn't the left have, like, the good principles, uh, things that would be attractive uh, to people? Uh, mm-hmm. I think that that's that's uh, that's that's step number one. If you have a left-wing political party, like, the, like say, the Democratic Socialists, they have to have strong, radical principles, and they have to stick to them come hell or high water. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, can't, they can't backtrack on, on those things. And so I think statements of principles are, are, are really important. Every organization has to have them. I give some examples uh, uh, in, in the book. They, they have to be radical principles. Mm-hmm. You might not be able to achieve them, but you, but you got to stick to them. I, I get tired of hearing, you know, so-called progressives say, "Well, of course we're for border security," uh, or or right now there's a, a, a potential coup going on against Venezuela, where the United States has actually said that they recognize an opposition leader when there's a democratically elected president already in power. Mm-hmm. In Venezuela, well, so far I think about nine congresspersons have uh, have have come out against that. Mm-hmm. Now I read Bernie Sanders' statement; it was pretty weak, I thought, mm-hmm. because it, it it says, "Well, we shouldn't go down the path of intervention," but he's already said a lot of bad things about Venezuela. Right, right. So just, where's the where, where's the principle there? Of course, you have to look at these societies, and you have to realize that there's there's struggles going on inside those societies. Uh, of course, you have to realize that. You have to realize that there's legitimate reasons to think that the Maduro government has made a lot of mistakes and a lot of errors. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the reliance upon oil is not a good thing over the long haul. It's good when oil's good, mm-hmm. but bad when oil's bad. I understand that. But by the same token, you have to have a principle of, of non, non, non-intervention. Same mm-hmm. thing's true with borders. Of course, we're for border security. But Baloney, you got to be for more open borders for people's rights to move uh, across borders and wherever they want to go. It's time for another break. This is Turning Loose by the Redskins. When we return, we'll confront nationalism as a tool for capitalist division of the working class. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is The Future Cannot Be Capitalist. In this segment, Michael Yates talks about militarism and nationalism as tools used against the working class. Well, borders is an interesting point simply because one of the key issues here, too, is the the idea of, you know, nationalism. You know, the idea of uh, borders are, are essentially nationalistic ideas. And so you have uh, the, the point here that you have to make borders open, that people are always a part of the we. And having closed borders creates this nationalist tendency. Well, I agree. And, and of course, nationalism is one of the things that capital has played upon from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, in capitalism's early stages, there is even I mean, there, there are governments, but there's no sense that you're French or that you're Italian or that you're German. Uh, that has to be created. It's created through the school system. It's created mainly through wars. It's mm-hmm. created mo- mainly by creating others as capital tries to expand, as one country goes to war against another. And, you know, you, you get that you, you get that all the time. Like you'll hear politicians say, well, the one thing we can say for sure is that we're all Americans. Mm-hmm. Well, that means that we're not Germans, that we're not Indians or that we're not Chinese. And so whatever the Chinese are doing, they can be that can be made to seem as evil. Right. Meaning that the Chinese are evil or the Indians are evil or the Japanese are evil. Uh, nationalism is a disaster. Every time I see a like at a union meeting, people say the Pledge of Allegiance for the love of Peter, <laughs> play the national anthem at a union meeting. I get nauseated. Yeah, yeah. Because militarism and nationalism are are at least in the global north, these are not good things. Right, right, right. And you can't even get people to say I won't be in the military. I won't support wars. Uh, 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 you can't even get people to say that. So that has to be something. They have to fight strongly against and every, every any left wing political party, every union, every organization has yeah. to keep that sort of thing in mind. Now, it's interesting that like in the United Electrical Workers or in some other unions, when they make common cause with Mexican workers or workers in other countries, it always works out pretty well. Mm-hmm. And when you have people from other countries come here, meet with union people here, they get to see how other people live. Uh, the union people that I taught for all those years, they're not bad people. They got good hearts. They've engaged in collective struggle. Uh, they're they're not they they can be taught. They can be convinced. That other worlds are possible. <laughs> well, let's talk about how we convince and and teach. Uh, uh, that's another one of your terrains of struggle is radical education. And and we'll stress throughout. Obviously, radical means radical here. You you're you're again you're not backing off any of these things. You're going to stick to some principles. You discuss commoning acts of doing things in common. Uh, you mentioned the the community garden and communal values, but as you say, these have to continually be renewed. They have to be repeated. We have to keep talking about them. We have to keep acting within them. One of the places we need to do it is obviously the home, but education, schools, etc. Schools obviously are, are where we reproduce our ideologies already. So it's probably nearly impossible to imagine a, a public school system in the U.S. as being radical and supporting socialism or, or any of these other terms we're going to use that, that, that privilege the we over the I. Well, I would say I would say this. Let's let's start somewhere. You just had a big strike in Los Angeles that had some success. I understand that uh, dissidents had taken over the teachers union mm-hmm. and began a more democratic process of struggle against the school district and for 
for smaller class sizes and, 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 and so on and so forth. But it seems to me that a teacher's union would be critical in terms of, first of all, the radical education of its own members. Mm -hmm. uh, so that you start to ask yourself, first of all, education for what? Right. What kind of education? Those are the things that could be discussed inside of the union first in their own education program so that the teachers themselves become educated as to how the system works. I lived in Pittsburgh for a long time. There was a teachers union there, the American Federation of Teachers, which had struck illegally before uh, collective bargaining legislation was passed in the state of Pennsylvania that gave teachers the right to strike. And during that strike, the union's treasury was impounded legally in, by injunction. Hmm. The teachers were enjoined against striking. They struck anyway. Uh, some were arrested. A militant union which helped to win much better working conditions and much higher pay for the teachers. This is Interchange on WFHB. Michael Yates, retired editorial director of the Monthly Review Press, shares a personal story of how even militant unionists still embody the capitalist propaganda of national allegiance. I I had three sons in the schools in Pittsburgh. They all three refused to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, and not a single teacher in that in that militant union supported them. Mm. Not one. I kept getting phone calls from the teachers saying my kids were no good, that they were misbehaving, that they weren't standing for the Pledge of Allegiance, that it was outrageous, et cetera, et cetera. So there you had a combination of that nationalism. You know they're supposed to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance, mm. even though they have the perfect legal right not to do so. Uh, and the teachers who didn't mind standing together with risk to themselves when they faced the school district, by the same token, stood in an authoritarian role with respect to my sons. Mm -hmm. And seems to me that in that teacher's union, there must be people in Los Angeles who have a more radical perspective about the society as a whole. Mm -hmm. And that therefore you could start some sort of education system inside of that union. I had students who went out into their unions, the Carpenters Union in New York City, and started education programs mm. after they took the classes from me. In other words, the teachers became teachers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's the kind of thing that I think has to begin at that local level where education occurs inside of the organizations so that gradually people begin to take on a larger view mm -hmm. of things. And then they start to ask, well, why are we teaching what we're teaching? Why are we teaching to the test? Why aren't people learning anything about the nature of society and history classes and that sort of thing? Right, right. And, of course, another thing that probably has to happen is we have to start starting our, our own schools. Right. Uh, there used to be labor education system uh, programs started by the Communist Party in the United States, by the farmer labor parties in the, uh, in, in the northern Midwest and all around the country. There were labor schools uh, in the United States that weren't associated with universities. They were in, they were independent schools. Uh, what's that black mountain uh, college down in the, in the South that, uh, trained so many people in the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So those kind of grassroots produce yourself, you know, resist, right. occupy, 
I produce. Right, right. Education well, is something that's produced just like food. Right, right. Well, it's important. As, uh, and again, you give a lot of space to radical education because there's so many parts to it in the sense that you you have to keep hitting on many of these topics within the so-called, I guess, uh, curriculum of radical education. You have to always be asking the questions, you know, you know what uh, that that frame capitalism as part of the the lesson always, you know, why are we doing this and why does why does capitalism act this way at the same time. You note uh, throughout too that racism, patriarchy, imperialism all connected to exploitation and expropriation and climate change as well. So all of these things we do and you think about your kids in school right now learning abstract you know, math problems, learning physics with no other component uh, attached to it or their history classes where they just run through a timeline of events on the calendar and, and, and at least I know here occasionally get lessons um, uh, on why socialism is bad or communism fails and not any other uh, conversation at all. So, uh, you know, having to combat some of these things are, are, are going to be constant and that you've got to keep it at the front of the conversation. No, I, I agree. And, but it's one of the things that I found interesting when I did labor education. Um, and in Johnstown, which was so conservative when I first started, uh, I would contrast the uh, sort of mainstream economic view of the world. Mm -hmm. That is, when everybody acts selfishly, society as a whole would benefit. Right, right. And right off the bat, students would say, oh, wait a minute, or that uh, one of the tenets of mainstream economics is that workers are paid according to their productivity. Right. And workers would say, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. Then I would give them the you know, Marx's view of the society. But at that time, uh, you couldn't really, it was hard to say that in 1980. <laughs> right. right. You have to change your formulation. It's hard to use the name of Marx. Yeah. 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 Uh, that changed. So what I called it was the workers theory. Mm -hmm. And I would present the labor theory of value. Mm -hmm. I never found a working class student that didn't say, geez, that makes a lot of sense. Right. Right. I understand that. That's my experience at the workplace. So you start from the experience of people. You start from the experiences of your students. Uh, I give that example where that great uh, radical labor, the radical educator, Ira Shore, mm -hmm. uh, is in a school uh, and he starts to talk about the chair that the students are sitting in. What is this chair? What function does it serve? How did it come to be produced? And the students read, they write, and pretty soon the chair becomes more than a chair. Right. The chair provides the key to understand the nature of the whole system. Or the great example I give of the great labor educator, Leo Huberman, one of the founders of Monthly Review magazine, and how he teaches working people. It's a kind of a brilliant exercise. That's the kind of skill that teachers have, have to start to have mm -hmm. to get their students to see the larger picture. I know it would be very difficult in a public school. Sure. It's probably hard in colleges now. I, mm -hmm. I haven't talked in a long time in colleges. I, as I understand it, they're becoming worse and worse. Well, you have a, you know, if you just do a quick glance at who gets paid the most at colleges and universities, they're, you know, they're not. They're not labor educators and they're not humanities educators. And uh, even they're even actually uh, you could even put the the marketing uh, pay of the marketing uh, professors up against the, the physics, chemistry, you know, the, the, the hard sciences, the marketing people make as much as the hard sciences. So, so uh, they definitely um, universities teach by those examples. There's no doubt about that. 
time for our final break. Here's another song off the Redskins album, Neither Washington Nor Moscow. Keep on keeping on. When we return, how the working class must change agricultural production. Stay with us. I Doug Storm on Interchange. For our final segment with Michael Yates, we'll turn to how capitalist agriculture has created wasted resources and abused immigrant labor. And we'll close with an example of how labor organizations compel an ethic of care beyond considerations of self. If education like that is important, then those who have a radical perspective, and as I understand it, there's more and more people like that in the United States even. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Democratic Socialists of America are growing. Well, that's a good place to to to, to start. Mm -hmm. That's a good place to begin to think about a more radical uh, education, about a, uh, about what goals you have for the, for the society as a whole and how those are going to be uh, how those are going to be achieved. Yeah. And you know what? You point out the important, uh, the important thing to, to keep again in the front of our heads is that, uh, as we're careening towards a real climate catastrophe, that there, there won't be a place for you individually to have any success. You can't conceive of your wealth in the future if there's no place to be in. So, uh, you move on to agriculture, peasants, farm workers, and environment. You talked about some of that already with the, the Detroit example, um, uh, and the example in Cuba as well, uh, produce while learning, teach while producing, and learn while teaching. Um, I like the the phrases that come out of the book as well that you can kind of uh, keep in the front of your head. I think it was in Detroit, there's a feed em freedom. So uh, outside of, of looking at sort of the idea that first uh, agriculture, the way we do it, is, uh, is ridiculously wasteful, uh, full of toxins, chemi uh, chemical products, full of uh, denuded uh, 
products, vegetables with with no nutritional value, et cetera, full of a um, uh, a meat industry that that is uh, constant constantly polluting. And besides just the horror of factory farming and and animal farming, uh, it's just a huge waste of resources and a huge polluter. We clearly have to change agriculture. No, there's no question about that. You know, I once worked for the United Farm Workers Union in California at the union headquarters. And so I got a little bit of firsthand uh, experience with the way farming is done in the United States. And I say in the book that uh, everybody should go through the Central Valleys in California, take a nice slow trip through there and see how our food is produced and see who does the work. I mean, agriculture uh, contains many evils. It's not just the production of the food, but it's the exploitation of the workers mm-hmm. as well. Always brown-skinned people, the people that uh, uh, Donald Trump wants us to hate, the people that he says are drug dealers and criminals and rapists. These are the people that grow our food. These are the people that uh, uh, clean our houses. These are the people that do all of the chores and tasks that we don't want to do. Uh, so agriculture it's like a microcosm in a way of the of the of the larger system so certainly if that's not changed then i don't know really what hope there is that's how that's how we feed ourselves that's the way initially we connected to the world around us was by pr- producing food that's a universal in all of the of of human existence but we know, according to the work of people like Fred Magdoff, whose who's father, Harry, was the editor of Monthly Review for a long time, and many others, that the world, even as many people as there are in it, could be fed without industrial agriculture. Uh, and, and I think we, we have to move in that direction. There are peasants around the world. There are all kinds of organizations. There's production in the United States that counters the the. Uh, uh, factories in the fields, the industrial agriculture that we have now, where uh, everything is, is, is commodified, uh, where cost is the main concern, where inefficiencies are rampant. If you look at energy in and energy out, the hunters and gatherers are more productive mm-hmm. than agriculture in, in, uh, in the advanced capitalist countries. So that's a good place to start. And as as Grace Lee Bogg says, when you engage in that kind of, uh, of smaller scale localized agriculture, it socializes people. It gets them connected to nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, people don't know in, in the cities. Do you think young kids know how food is produced? Mm-hmm. I doubt it. Uh, they just eat it. Right. Uh, they eat fast foods. They have no idea where the food comes from, right. how it's produced, how the animals are treated, and what have you. So there's a lot of possibilities there with respect to agriculture. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest is Michael Yates, author of Can the Working Class Change the World? He questions how the left can invest hope in capitalist technologies to avert climate catastrophe. One of the things that disturbs me a lot is this notion that even those on the left present, like um, Jacobin Magazine had a, had a special environmental issue, which I thought was just dreadful, because you had people in there talking about technology mm-hmm. as the solution to our problems without understanding that technology in a capitalist society has embedded in it 
the nature of the capitalist society. Mm -hmm. That is, the machinery itself is made with an eye towards exploitation and expropriation. It's not built for the we. It's built for the I. Right. And so you can't solve the world's problems by using capitalist technology. It's just it's just not going to work. Right. So so you need a different concept of technology itself. You have people on the left thinking that modern industrial agriculture feeds feeds the world, that everybody would starve if we didn't have it. Well, I think that notion has to be countered mm. as radically and as constantly as possible. Mm -hmm. The socialization, the 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 way in which the the activities, the actions that we do daily make us who we are as well. So, you know, once you begin to change your actions and focus your your world into that we space, you begin to have that kind of consciousness as well. And 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 uh, agree to that to say to yourself, I can make a different intellection you know i can make a different perspective i can find a way to change the world in this way also allows you to see how you've been made into the person you are already you are habituated to these activities you are habituated to consumption you are habituated to these negative things that we've already talked about habituated to racism habituated to patriarchy habituated to misogyny, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? So once you get your hands dirty into, into changing these things, you begin to open up all those other ways to see. You begin to open up a process of self-reflection to yeah. see how you are and how you're made. But right. I want to give you an example. Uh, there's an organization in um, uh, New York City in, in the Manhattan's Chinatown called the Chinese Staff and Workers Association. It's not a union. It's like that of Mokley Farm Workers in uh, in Florida, mm -hmm. that kind of organization. And the man who run who was the director of it is named Wing Lam. And I visited him a number of years ago with uh, my wife Karen. And the workers in uh, Chinatown that that the Chinese Staff and Workers Association champions uh, mostly work in garment sweatshops and in restaurants. And at the time we visited, which was a number of years ago, uh, you had people who came from China. Uh, they already were in debt to get here. They had to pay somebody to get here. They're undocumented for the most part. And uh, they're viciously exploited in restaurants. They're not paid uh, minimum wage. They're often cheated. They're not paid overtime, uh, et cetera. And so the Chinese Staff and Workers Association, let's say that you're working in a restaurant. You're working 100 hours a week. At the time, people were making as low as $2 an hour. So you go to the Chinese Staff and Workers Association and you say, I haven't been paid. I haven't been paid overtime. The boss owes me a lot of money. The Chinese Staff and Workers Association said, yes, uh, we'll see what we can do. But if we take up your cause, you have to take up others' cause. Hmm. In other words, we won't help you unless you help others. Mm -hmm. In other words, they compel the we. Hmm. in a sense, so that, of course, you want justice for yourself. So you say, yes, I will do that. Mm -hmm. I will help others. And then you become part of the we. You become part of an organization then. And that's how Wang Lam and the Chinese Staff and Workers Association build solidarity within itself. It's like a, it's like a process of education. As you get justice for yourself, you see that other people have to get justice too, or you can't get justice. And I think that's like a good model. It's not just that you try to educate people, but you got to make demands on people as well. You got to say, no, you have to do this. You have to devote some time to this.
I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Uh, that's how when we become part of something larger than ourselves, we educate ourselves as well. We become part of the we then instead of just the I. That's our show, and our final Redskin song off of Neither Washington Nor Moscow is Lean On Me. Thanks to Michael Yates for joining us to show us how it's the working class who must stand up to capitalism in order to save the human future. His new book, Can the Working Class Change the World, published by Monthly Review Press, lays out pressure points where disruption and change can occur. Next time on Interchange, can electoral politics lead to revolution? August Nimps joins us to show how Vladimir Ulyanov combined the strategies of direct action in the streets and voting in the ballot box to make a revolution. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Wes Martin is executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Leave me out, leave me out.